Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. New York Knicks, nothing personal word of the day. It's a Samson sit down. And I have been looking forward to this since the minute I heard about this book. We are so lucky to have Chris Herring, an author of a book that if you don't read, I don't, you just must not read. It's called Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. This is 85 down the middle for me, and I'm sort of fanboying a little bit because I'm so happy you're here. Chris, thank you for joining Nothing Personal. Thank you so much for having me, David. I really appreciate you wanting to have me on. Oh, well, this was when I saw that you were writing this book. Uh, you, we, we don't know each other, and you were gracious enough to answer my email, which thank you, Pablo, by the way, who gave me your email address without asking you first, I believe. So I apologize for that, but thank you for no responding. Problem. So people who are fans of nothing personal know that my first love is basketball, even though I was in baseball for 18 years. And the Knicks are my true love and a true love lasts a lifetime as hard as it's been to love the Knicks for the past 22 years. The reality is that the 90s Knicks and I was with them. Unfortunately, I was born in 68. I started being a fan, if you can believe it, in 74 when I moved to New York. So I missed the championships and all I wanted was a title. That's it. And the 90s were the, the best era for the Knicks. I have to start by asking you, what made you choose this subject for your most recent book? Well, th this is my first book, so it's kind of an important one to kind of get, you know, get off on the right foot. Um, somebody put the project in front of me, honestly. Um, I, like I said, I'd never written a book before, um, but it's interesting because you know, like any business, like any freelance writer, like any um, person that wants to do well with what they're doing, you want to make sure you have an audience that is going to be receptive to it. And there was a literary agent that in his dealings with the publishers that have to make a decision about whether they are going to bid on books when they become available and, and are out on the market. This literary agent had been having conversations with a number of publishing houses about what they were going to be interested in buying or placing bids on. And every time he would talk to one, um, a, a, another person that ran a publishing house, they would all say, you know, we would really love a book on the 90s Knicks. We would really love to bid on a book about the 90s Knicks. No one's ever really written about them before at length. The Knicks haven't been good in a really long time. We feel like there's a big nostalgia built up there. And not to mention, these publishing houses are all headquartered in New York. And so the people that run them in most cases are Knicks fans. And so um, the literary agent kind of had that in his head that a lot of people in that market were interested in seeing a book on that subject. So in his mind, it was just a matter of trying to find an author that could bring the book to life and, and not just that, but hopefully had a good connection with Knicks fans. And in my case, I covered the Knicks from 2012 to 2016 a period where they weren't very good. Um, and I think kind of at least got the respect of a, a large portion of the fan base, certainly the one that's involved in social media and whatnot. And, you know, I never really talked down to them, never really was making light of how, how bad the Knicks were. I was always trying to analyze them in a really different, unique way. Um, and, you know, and, and so I've, I've always maintained that relationship with the fan base, I'm not a fan myself, but um you know, so I think other people took notice of that, too, throughout our industry. And a guy named Jonathan Abrams, who um, has written two bestsellers of his own, uh, one called Boys Among Men, that was about high school players making the jump to the NBA. So like LeBron, Kobe, Kevin Garnett. Um, and then he Spencer wrote a bestseller. Haywood. Yeah, Spencer Haywood is a big focal point of the book as well. And um, and he also wrote a um, an oral history of The Wire that became a bestseller. But when the literary agent asked him, because he covered basketball, Jonathan Abrams covered basketball, he said, who would be good to write this book? 
Jonathan said, oh, I want to do it. I want to do it. And he's like, you've already got two books you're working on, so it's not going to be you, but who else would you suggest to do it? And I apparently was the first person that he mentioned because he'd seen kind of the great care that I took with regards to writing about the Knicks and how seriously I took it. And that I was trying to write about them in a different way that was not like a tabloid fashion sort of way, um, but, you know, an appropriate kind of measured sort of tone that I took with the team. And in terms of fairness, I would always hear feedback from the executives that, they were not fans of every story that I did, but that they at least appreciated that I was willing to kind of give them some benefit of the doubt, but also hold their feet to the fire with certain things, with the things I was critiquing and calling out. Um, you so mentioned, though, mentioned, sorry, go, I was just going to say, you mentioned, though, did you have any idea when you were asked to do this? Because you talked about it in the acknowledgments or the epilogue, one of the one part at the end of the book, that it was a two year journey and that for your next book, you're going to try to be better and not put yourself into a corner. And and I guess what you did is you just sequestered yourself away for two years. What about this subject matter? Or was it the fact that it was your first book, but you have experience writing? What is it about this that made you take that journey and that sort of two year journey? Well, I think for a lot of authors, you know, maybe not first time ones, but I think for a lot of authors that do this full time, I guess, full time authors, uh, you're doing this and this is the only thing you're doing. For me, I was it was a, it was a second thing because I, I didn't take a leave of absence to write the book. So I was covering I covered the league. Um, I've covered the NBA for 10 years full time. So it was in addition to that. I, I teach a little bit on the side at Northwestern um, and, you know, like any buddy that's 35 younger than that, you know, I was 31, 32 when I took over the book project, you know, I had a personal life too. So you have to give a lot of those things up. I had to stop teaching. I basically had to lose the personal life for a little bit. The pandemic kind of made that the case with a lot of us anyway. Um, but it was, I mean, it's hard. You're not just writing a book, you're interviewing more than 200 people. You're then transcribing their quotes. You're, you're doing the research that's necessary to understand exactly what took place every day for an eight year span. Um, and you're trying to synthesize all that, not to mention you're, you're also trying to figure out whether people are telling you the truth or to what extent they're telling the truth or to what extent, you know, something happened or someone kind of taking it out of context. There's a lot of stuff you have to do to make sure that it's measured and that it's fair and that it's accurate. And um, that takes a really long time, particularly when you're a first time author, you're trying to establish a tone in the book. You're trying to establish pacing in the book to not have all your best anecdotes in the first chapter and then have the last 20 chapters read like crap. Um, so it's a lot of competing issues that you're trying to do, which is why it took me so long. In addition to, again, if I had just been writing the book and doing nothing else, maybe I could have been done with it in a year, a year and a half. But um, still, I think that would be a challenge for most people. And it certainly was for me. What story in the book did you say, wow, I better get a third, fourth and fifth source to corroborate this because I think this is going to make the final edit and this is going to be really surprising to people when they hear it. Was there a specific story that you were told where the light bulb went off and said, Ooh, this is juicy. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, there were a few, but I think the main one here was, um, and, and you having read through it, you know, this, but the 94 finals where I talk about part of what people are thinking to this day might've played a role in John Starks not being pulled and having Rolando Blackman replace him, you know, an all-star player in his prime, a four-time all-star, the leading scorer in Mavericks history at that point in time, um, and a player that had killed the Houston Rockets, which was the team the Knicks were playing at that time. And the idea that three or four different people before I even got to talk to Rolando about it, were all saying, talk to Rolando because there's something really big there, but I can't be the one to tell you. Um, and, you know, I'm curious the whole time like what could they possibly be talking about but why do people keep telling me this and when I finally got around to talking to Rolando he tells me oh they've got to be talking about the fact that I I asked Pat why we couldn't bring our wives on the trip uh, to Houston and I'm thinking why does that matter and then Rolando explains it to me and I'm still kind of stuck on why that would be so important to keep Rolando out of a game seven where the Knicks lose essentially by two two baskets um, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way anybody in their right mind would hold a player that they feel like can make a difference in a moment like that out when a championship is on the line. But, you know, so if it had just been my vantage point and my perspective and my thoughts, I never include that in the book. But again, I'm telling this story 
on some level through the eyes of the Knicks and through the eyes of the people that run the Knicks and play for the Knicks. If four players are telling me that they think that Pat Riley's decision-making might've been driven by a grudge or a frustration that he had with Rolando Blackman, and that they think that Pat might've actually held him out of a game because of that. And I, by the way, I do mention several anecdotes in the book that talk about how extreme Pat Riley was with the way he felt about things. The idea that even the color of his boss's wife's car was going to agitate him if it was green it had or to red be blue it had to be blue and he was dead serious about that the reason i use anecdotes like that and again this is where we get into how long the book took me to write structuring stuff in a way that lays out details like that so that you're leaving breadcrumbs so that when you look back you're like oh i did kind of know this about pat riley's maniacal personality but anyway i, I guess i still haven't said directly what it was the point is that there was a detail that I was given by Rolando Blackman that he had gotten into an argument with Pat Riley two and a half weeks before the finals about being able to bring his wife to the finals. The Knicks had never, the, the players on the Knicks, none of them had ever been to the finals. None of them had ever won a championship. So they're looking at having made the finals by beating Indiana as a crowning achievement. And he asked Pat in front of the whole team, can we bring our wives to Houston for the finals? Pat says, no. Rolando doubles back and says, why can't we bring our wives? We've never made it this far. This has been a really long, difficult season for us that we've succeeded. But part of the reason we're able to even do what we do is because our wives take care of our families. Um, I don't think it's fair that we can't bring our wives. Like, can we please bring our wives on this trip? And Pat, again, very flatly said no. And it was, he viewed it as disrespectful that Rolando asked him a second time. Uh, Rolando felt like it was a slap in the face to him and the other veterans who, you know, never really asked for that right to be able to bring their wives. Um, and so the idea was that that they laid out to me, him, Doc, um, Derek Harper mentioned it, and also uh, Charles Oakley has it in his book uh, that just came out. At least four people, I mean, that's a third of the team at that point, but those are all veteran, like very respected players in that locker room, and they all mentioned it. Um, so that was one of those details where it's like, you have to get the detail from multiple people because that, if you're talking about something that potentially swung a championship and they think that it had something to do with Pat holding a grudge and to mention that Pat did not speak to me for this book. So you absolutely need that detail for multiple people. Um, and, and I would, you know, so can to I, me, that was something that I needed multiple people for. Can I push back for one second on a couple of things that are interesting? I think I went to every one of those games in the 94 finals. I was okay. hoping to get a story about the rodeo that the team went to and that I was invited to go to between games one and two is me and Spike Lee and Jeffrey Laurie, who ended up becoming the owner who I worked for, was my stepfather at the time, that we, we had days in Houston. And we had lost, we, I keep saying we, it's not we, it's they, but I felt like it was we. And so we went to this rodeo and we were trying to just enjoy each other. And Riley was despondent that there were people outside of the Knicks inner circle allowed at this rodeo and including Spike Lee and including myself, but that wasn't in the book. And the other thing that I don't recall reading was Pat Riley's quote about the John Starks two for 18, because when we're watching game seven, we're watching Starks have one of those games, but John Starks, that's who he was. He was sort of the mini microwave, I used to call him, with the main microwave being a guy named Vinnie Johnson who played for the Detroit Pistons. When right. he just hits a shot, he's going to hit two, he's going to hit six, that's the microwave. And Starks sort of was like that, and he just was not making shots in game seven. And the question is, when do you go to Blackman? And Riley, when asked about it, said, we dance with the people we brought to the dance. Meaning Starks, without Starks, we're not in the game seven. At any given moment, he has a chance to hit a shot and one shot goes in, then it starts a landslide of shots. That to me was his reasoning. And I didn't fully understand it until I got into sports. And when I'm running a team and we have a pitcher hitter matchup, in a World Series game, let's say in 03 when we won the World Series, that is that the, the hitter's just, he's in a slump. He's not seen the ball. There's something going on. We're not pinch hitting for our best hitter because all it takes is for him to guess right one time or to recognize a pitch one time, and he's going to get a hit or possibly hit a home run. So the criticism that he didn't play Blackman because of wives, I just want to follow up with one more thing for you to think about. 
What Blackman was talking about is having the Knicks have the wives on the team charter, not having wives in Houston. Wives were always allowed to be on the road with us, but they were not allowed on our team plane. During the playoffs, we allowed wives on the team plane for the World Series when we brought employees as well, but we didn't want the distraction because players on team planes are not exactly acting in a way that we want, wanted the wives to see. Therefore, we wanted the players to be themselves. So Riley getting heat for not having wives, it wasn't that they couldn't be in Houston. It's he didn't want them on the charter. And I think that that is a, a difference that if you haven't run a team, maybe you're not thinking about that I just wanted to point out to you. I've, trust me, I've read The Bad the bad Guys One by Jeff Perlman, which the whole book starts with the idea of the wives being on the plane and it being a complete mess and, and the, the plane getting trashed, the wives getting in arguments with their husbands, their boyfriends, whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, it is literally the opening scene of a book that is about a team that was just in total disarray, but also managed to win, which I feel like is kind of runs counter from that standpoint. Normally teams in disarray lose, but I mean, the Mets were in, in the drugs and everything else. And, you know, the Bronx Zeus, I mean, so there, there was a lot going on. Um, so I, I, I fully understand that part of it. Um, again, from my vantage point, if I'm just writing this in my own world, not worried about what other people are saying, thinking I don't even include the Riley detail myself because I don't think realistically that's why Riley would hold him out of a game. He was not a massive part of the rotation before that anyway. Um, and so, and I, and I make a point to try to mention that he had not played prior to game seven. So in my mind, it wasn't a big deal, but in my mind, if, other key guys on that roster feel like it's a big deal and still think that 30 years later. I think it's very relevant to include. I also think it's relevant to include that Riley has reached out to Rolando multiple times over the years to essentially write what I think could be perceived as apologies. And so, um, and he's you know, never I, responded by the way. Right. So Rolando still seems like Rolando claims there are no hard feelings. Maybe he just kind of feels like there's nothing to be said. So I don't want to put words in his mouth about having hard feelings, but um, you know, that was why I included it. I, I think it's important to include possible theories um, that other people raise that could be legitimate in some way. But like I said, and I made a whole point, you know, in that, in that chapter to kind of two track it to say that John Starks was also on fire. John Starks had essentially become their best scorer in that series because Patrick Ewing was not good against the Olajuwon. So I, I understand all the dynamics at play with that. Um, but I did feel like it was important to include because the other thing, too, I mean, just as an author, as a writer, you want to include the different things that could be at play. Um, it would have been wonderful if Pat would have spoken to me for the book. I certainly put that question to him even once he denied or declined to be interviewed. I still emailed him a set of questions saying, like, it'd be really great if you can answer this, even if you don't want to talk to me. There are people saying this. And so he had every opportunity to, to respond to that. Um but, but no, I mean, I think that that's, you know, it's just kind of the way stuff happened. I completely agree that John Starks probably has a better chance to win that game for you than he does. But at what point do you, do you let someone go two for 80? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure where you pull the plug. I'm not sure Pat did either. Jeff Van Gundy has basically said the same thing. He's like, I, you know, Pat, it's, an impossible, out. it's an impossible decision to make as an on-field manager or coach when it's sure. your when it's your player who you know is streaky and you're in a game seven there's no tomorrow there's no you're, it's it's binary you're either going to be right or you're going to be wrong there's no in between and unfortunately he was wrong and it came when the Knicks that was their best chance post Jordan I, I want to mention Patrick Ewing who I it was my hero in terms of on on the court and I I loved him he's my favorite Nick of all time First piece of memorabilia I ever got was Patrick Ewing sneakers, which I still have in my studio right here. And here is my 1994 Game 7 Patrick Ewing story. I was staying in the same hotel as the Knicks, and I was not going to approach the Knicks, ask for autographs. I wasn't going to do anything while there were anybody around. I get off the elevator on my floor at the team hotel the day of Game 7, five hours before the game, post shoot around pre them show, then getting on the bus for the game. There is Patrick Ewing sitting on the chair that is right when the elevator opens. And I get out of the elevator with my best friend, Jeff, who I was with. We're, we're wearing our Nick stuff. So we are Nick fans. And there's Ewing. And I, and I stop and I say, Patrick, 
you know, we got it. Let's go. Hey, just curious, would you sign my shirt? And he looked at me and said, no, man, I don't sign autographs. And I was despondent. I wasn't in sports. I was a, I was actually working in Europe at the time. And I was, I couldn't believe that he wouldn't do it. It made me so upset and angry that I carried that with me to running of a team where I insisted that players sign autographs. And then I read in the book and I've known about this, that Patrick is this way. It is so bizarre and so sad that he did not do that. I understand why in public he doesn't, but it just shows the type of person he was. He just didn't like being bothered by the trappings of fame and the pressure for him on that game seven. And he was having a tough series, but I didn't get a chance to be in your book because why would you know to call me? But that would have been a story about that would have firmed your position on Ewing. I mean, I thought where you were going with that story was going to be that he did sign and I was going to be shocked because I, you know, all throughout the, well, I guess not all throughout the book, but I think twice in the book I mentioned, and what I think is interesting is not just that he didn't sign it, but that that kind of shaped your psyche with regards to feeling like players should sign, which is essentially what I say about Anthony Mason is that he couldn't understand why Patrick didn't sign things, but also in part because of the way Patrick handled it, Mace was going to sign everything anybody put in front of him, a body part, a basketball, a shoe, um, because he he saw he had been that kid that had been shunned basically before too and i think people that know what that feels like make it a point mentally to say if i'm ever in a position where i've got to sign anything or if i'm ever overseeing a team then i'm going to institute rules with this um because it, it it's an ugly feeling I, now i tried to you know i was trying to be nuanced and balanced about everything in the book and i, I tried to like you say explain why patrick was like that i, I don't think anybody else on the roster had even an inkling for what it was like to be Patrick who had been under a microscope essentially since he had been in high school and not just to say a microscope, but I think in some ways, like a pretty racist microscope, Un but not in some school. ways, Chris, he was, what, I mean, the was way bad. he was treated was unbelievable. I mean, just, it was, it made me so angry. And this is way before all of the reckoning that's going on finally now, if sure. although not completely, but Patrick was destroyed by all of the white people comparing him to apes and my, it was it was terrible and that definitely formed part of sort of putting the cocoon around him and he had gotten a bunch of bad press about his relationships and his divorce and everything else and instead of making him look outward it actually made him look more inward sure sure and i think you know for me I don't deny that maybe it played a role in Patrick really taking a long time to land a head coaching job. I'm sure it probably does play a part when you, you figure you factor in that he was not the most open, warm, smiley person with the media or really anybody that wasn't in his inner circle. Um, but it's always rubbed me the wrong way a little bit when the people making those critiques about him generally all look the same. And they look a lot like the people that make the decisions about hiring people um, where on some level, yes, you want your front facing people in management and coaching to be smiley, to be warm, to be given the benefit of the doubt, but also you just need them to win. Like if you think he's going to be a good coach and you think he knows what he's talking about, it's not to say give him a chance out of charity, but like you talk about guys that have paid their dues. Patrick had done that for a long time and had been a star player and, and had, Theoretically, you know, if you're thinking about guys that say, I want to go play for this person because I remember watching them play or I've heard a lot about how great they were. Uh, Patrick's going to be at the top of that list. So he deserved a shot, I think, much earlier. But anyway, yeah, the, the trappings of fame were much different for him than anybody else on the roster. I mean, Oakley, Mason Starks were all all-stars exactly one time. Mace wasn't even an all-star as a Nick. Um, and, you know, John Starks was undrafted. Charles Oakley was someone that, um, you know, had some skill, but he was not even in the He was same the enforcer. And you pointed out in the book, which made me so thankful, he had the best 17-foot jump shot on the entire team. And this guy who you wouldn't so. imagine, and it was, you wanted him. And that, that shot is now gone from basketball because today's NBA is all threes or dunks. And sort of everything that Red Holzman and Pat Riley taught, in my opinion, doesn't exist in today's NBA. But Ewing from the point next to the really side key was was absolutely money every time. So yeah. one more thing about about Ewing, when you talk about you talked about Ewing and Mason. 
you really had to tread carefully with Anthony Mason because a he's passed away. So you were not going to get to hear from him. B a very complicated character, tough off the court, tough on the court. And he was an enigma to me. And you pointed this out in the book. And I learned something about him that I didn't know the $2,000 story versus 1500 where Ed Tapscott had to go to the ATM to get him an extra 500 bucks. And it brought me right back to dealing with players in the community, running a baseball team where you're always worried. Are they going to show up? Are they going to be nice to the kids? Are they going to sign autographs? It was a constant source of anxiety for me. And I never assumed that Anthony Mason was anything other than perfect in this regard. And you say that in the book, but then that story was so out of character. And then you say why? And what's I I don't want to give a spoiler, except he was grumpy and it would seem as though he was not being cooperative. But in fact, there was a reason behind him wanting it. But I was wondering and I wish that Anthony were around to ask him why he didn't say that to start with. Mm. And and that was the issue with Anthony. You always had to dig five layers deep to figure out what was going on in there. And it was always from a place of, of, of kindness, even though he was the strongest. If you don't know Anthony Mason is go Google it. The guy is Adonis, right? I mean, you, you put him in a uniform. He's just this strong person, a perfect New York story. You can't believe he's been a journeyman. He's played all over the world. And then he's all of a sudden a part of a team that can win a championship. So what was, how did you approach Anthony Mason and that situation? I was terrified if I'm being honest with you um, because you knew, well, maybe you don't, but like you, you get a sense right off the bat that he's really complicated and you add in the layer of him having passed away. What at this point, six, seven years ago, seven years ago. Um, it's terrifying to try to do that because you've got someone that if you're going to have a full chapter on him, readers are expecting and probably some of them wanting a really notorious sort of figure to emerge and for you to get all the dirt on the guy, which, I mean, the book was not out to get that necessarily. It was out to tell the story of who these guys were and what happened behind the scenes during those years. So of course there's going to be some of that in there, but you don't just want it to be this chapter where you just get opportunities to laugh for 35 or 40 minutes at how silly or crazy the guy was because like he has a family still he's got really good friends still and the thing that I heard from a lot of them when I reached out to them was one wow um you've got some balls to call me and ask about some of this stuff but two um you know there's something about you that I trust in a way that I haven't before where people have wanted to write stories about Anthony and people have repeatedly said no to those reporters they're saying well because you're doing a book And because I see like kind of your track record as far as where you've worked and the sort of work you've done, you'll have the the space to really tell his story fully. Um, But that was such an important thing to me. And it's weird because as a journalist, you never really want to say like this mattered more to me than this did. But um, to me, getting his story right was essentially the most important thing in the book, because I knew certain people were going to want to see like what was true about him, what was not. Um, And he, you know, unlike everybody else in the book, he wasn't there to respond to my questions. Um, He doesn't get a chance to fend for himself uh, with some really ugly allegations, with some really ugly sorts of things that are thrown out there. So, you know, there's been a rumor floating around for years that there was some involvement that he had with Notorious B.I.G., is it related to an incident at his home? Um, And I was, you know, like people out of the blue that have never talked to me before, but like, did you get the detail? Was it him? Was he the guy? And I, that sort of question, like, I understand why people are curious and it's to some extent, maybe funny to them, but even that allegation is like kind of serious, not an allegation about him, but about, you know, presumably someone that he would have been involved with. Uh, So it's just, the whole thing I had to be very careful about. And with that detail, with several details, I was making sure that I was able to confirm things with at least two people in most cases that would have been really close to him or tight with him. I heard a lot of stories that didn't make it because I just couldn't confirm them or wasn't convinced from the one person or two people that I'd spoken to, or they, there were some things I was told by multiple people, but they were not the people that I trusted most in his circle. And so 
I was, I treaded very carefully with that, but I feel like I told a really complete story in that chapter and the people that I trusted most in my corner, my book editor, my friends, I kind of asked them like, what do you think of this chapter? And what they kept saying, each person was like, I don't know how to feel about them, but I think that's what you wanted me to take away from the chapter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Um, if you went in loving Anthony Mason, I don't think it probably made you stop feeling that way. If you went in thinking that he was like this brutish, you know, kind of character and and not a good dude. I'm not sure that you walked away not feeling that you probably felt a little bit more empathy for him and maybe a little bit more deepness for him. But um, that was the essentially the first real chapter I wrote in this book. I wrote chapter one of it, and then I immediately focused on Anthony Mason stuff for a solid two, three months. Uh, because I wanted to get it right. And I felt like it was that important. And I did not spend much time talking to his teammates with the Knicks because I, again, we kind of know that stuff more or less. I'm sure there's some things behind the scenes and I add some of that in the book, but I wanted to understand his life outside of just basketball, outside of just the Knicks. So I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people in his life that have never been talked to before. His roommates from college, his friends growing up, the training camp invites from the Knicks that, you know, basically had training day type experiences with him. Um, you know, that was more important to me. And I hope you pull that, some that names out, measures. Chris, you pulled some names out from just training camp people that I hadn't thought about in so long, which just shows the depth. But I want to ask as a writer, do you want people to read that and then not change their view? You just said that you assume the people who thought he may have been a great dude kept thinking that or people who thought he may not have been a great dude would keep thinking that is the goal often for an author to just lay out positions for confirmation bias purposes, or do you try to influence as a writer, the sort of vantage point, the looking glass through which you look at a person or a situation? No, 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 no. I'm not looking to sway anybody or, or to try to push them in one direction or to, you know, to confirm what they are. I want to pull out stuff they don't know already. Um, you know, so I, I felt like there was plenty there. I mean, any of the stuff that was from his years in college, as far as the tips he got into or the run-ins or the womanizing or the flirting or anything else, we might've known that that was within his personality, but you know, that, that stuff wasn't out there. Like those stories weren't out there. And so um, to some extent, like I said, we knew he was notorious. I think there were some things that confirmed that. Um, I think people knew that he was the kind of person that could get into bar fights. Um, I don't know how many fans remembered uh, certainly ones my age would have known or remembered the statutory rape charges. Um, and I don't know if people would have known about the idea that he was visiting children in hospitals, that he was making a point to try to, you know, sidle up to children to try to make them feel more comfortable in the classroom to speak up. Um, I don't know that anybody would have known those things or would have known that much about them. Um, so at the end of the day, with him in particular, I was trying to get across enough of a balanced portrait to explain how seriously he took religion, how seriously he sought out the team chaplain to talk about his, his concerns in his life, um, how awake he was all the time. And the idea that he was not someone that slept very well or really prioritized sleep, that he was constantly on the go, which, you know, in some ways, this was my aim was to try to get across when you talk about how someone lived their life and the idea that they pass away so young, that that might have been a factor in it was that it was not someone that took care of himself from a sleep standpoint. Um, that he lived a very, very fast life. And, uh, you know, and a couple of people told me that like, he probably did pass away a little bit early because of that. You consider his weight that he put on after, you know, later in his career, he did not have the most natural physique, um, you know, and there, there were steroid allegations at one point in the book that, um, that I didn't give too much 
uh, credit to just because there was no way to really prove or disprove it. Nobody would talk to me openly about that. But um, there are allusions in certain things in the book that I, I might hit on for a quick second, then back away. Um, because you want to put it out there and you want to at least give an, the outskirts of something to explain how something might have worked. Um, but no, I mean, I, I wasn't trying to push anyone in any one direction, but he was complicated. And I think his chapter reads that way. How well did you remember the Latrell Sprewell situation with Carlissima? Were you two? Me, like, personally? me as a, yeah, no, not very well. I mean, I remember it being a big news thing, but that was what, 1998? I think maybe 1997. It's uh, about 25 years ago. So you, in my opinion, you were, you were what, 10 years old? I, I was nine or 10. So, I mean, I remember it being a thing because it was just kind of the biggest story in the sports world for a while. Um, I remember from that standpoint, I couldn't have told you at the time what team he played for. Um, I just remember hearing that like, wow, this guy choked his coach. So it was a massive deal. And I guess what I certainly didn't appreciate or really know at the time is that a player like that, imagining a player like that going to go sign with the Knicks or the Yankees or, you know, the Bulls of that era, like would have been a huge, huge story. And I think it explained like kind of David Stern's reservations with that potentially the idea of having a player like that in your marquee market right after it happens. Um, so I did not really know that. I certainly did not fully appreciate kind of the idea of him coming to New York after all that or New York even wanting him. Um, at that time, but I, yeah, it's he was not, not a fringe really... player. He was, it, no, you know, you, you read a lot about fringe players. He was a superstar when that happened and that created all that buzz. And when he came to New York, you know, you, you really spend a lot of time in this book, which is so important. I just want to remind people if they're just beginning to listen to this, it's called blood in the garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s, New York Knicks. And whether you are an NBA fan or a Knicks fan, it is great reading and to un it gets right to the inside of what it is to build a championship contender, what goes on in the clubhouse, what goes on in the locker room, what's going on off the court, on the court, just a fascinating read. And we're here with Chris. Now we're talking about the later part of the 1990s, which is when they made it to the finals in 1999 as a number eight seed. And you spend some time on the Latrell Sprewell issue. And I wanted to know, what was your involvement with Latrell during the course of this book? Um. It was frustrating because I didn't end up getting him for the book. Um, I didn't get anybody that really still has ties to those Nick teams. Now um, the Knicks, I mean, I think a lot of people know this, maybe some don't are not the most media friendly as it, as it relates to, they're basically <laughs> not going to help you with anything. Um, certainly in today's game and with today's team, they're not going to go out of their way to really get you anybody maybe on an off chance that you're a huge name or, you know, um, an ESPN, but even then generally, they're not really helping you with that. Um, so in this case, um, I, after they were aware that I was doing the book, I needed certain people. I'd already reached out to certain people like John Starks being a good example, um, who has worked in alumni relations for them for several years. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is something that happened 25, 30 years ago with this team. It was a good era for them. It was a great era for them. Um, there should be no fear in, in having members of your staff that, you know, work for the team in some capacity now take questions from me for a half hour, 40 minutes. Um, there's nothing to be hurt here. There's no harm in doing this. Um, it's helping fill in the blanks for an era that fans feel really fondly about. They were not interested in helping me get John. John, when I reached out to him directly or to the person that runs this foundation, they're like, yeah, well, he's happy to talk to you as long as the Knicks okay it. And I said, oh, so I guess I'm not talking to him then. So that was true of him, Alan Houston, uh, I think Larry Johnson, Latrell Sprewell um, still has some ties to them and still shows up to games sometimes to sit with Dolan. Uh, so just frustrating from that standpoint. You know just it's all it's like, Dolan, right? You know it's all Dolan. And just I assume Dolan. that. I assume that. And I, I don't understand what difference it makes it's guy very involved in the media but not as it relates to speaking to the media or really <laughs> opening up to the media you know a guy that literally owns parts of the media or has before so it's a little frustrating but you know I, I would hope that the the book reads well I mean I'm you know I have a bias but I, I would hope that the book does not read as if I don't talk to any of these people because I've, I've spent so much time talking to the people around them whether it was teammates whether it's people from college whether it was family members. I spend a lot of time on anecdotes about their personal lives. Um, 
good, bad, and different, you know, just to kind of paint who they are. And I think, you know, to some extent, what I, the, the time I spent on that with Sprewell was kind of laying out that even if he had been painted as a monster, he probably was not one or not as much of one as people thought. And I think even with Dave Check as the team president from those years, kind of learned that very quickly when he, he Van Gundy, Tapscott, and Grunfeld all um, went to his home in Milwaukee to essentially kind of feel him out to figure out whether they wanted to bring him to New York. And the other three guys were convinced because, like you said, he was a stud. He was a star player. Um, I was Dave shocked Chekets, when you said that Checkets met with him alone, like he kicked the three out of the room. Yeah. I had never known that fact. That was a fascinating thing to learn as I was thinking, would I ever do something like that? And I would think the people who worked with me, my GM, et cetera, would think, well, what are you doing, David? Like, well, why are you getting rid of me? But that's how serious Checkets was about making sure that Latrell wasn't the way he was portrayed, which also had, by the way, racist undertones, the way he Huge was portrayed. Ones. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, you know, the OJ photo that was used on the cover of time that was darkened. You had some stuff like that going on with Latrell's pretty well, too. And, and look, like Latrell would be the first one to tell you, I think, that he was not right to literally choke PJ. And then, you know, as the book details, as, as, as just the media detailed at the time, he went back at PJ minutes later after he came out of the locker room, he went after him again. So he made the mistake more than once. Um, at that point, you could argue that some aspects of that were premeditated because he thought about it and then came back at, at PJ again. So he was extremely wrong. Um, but you would like to think that people are not necessarily their worst moment. Um, but it, you know, the media had a field day with that, just like the media has a field day with, with prominent black athletes. I think a lot of times when something goes wrong, um, even when it's kind of a first time incident uh, and, and, and quite frankly, I mean, the league, even as far as the reaction to it, to have a year long suspension is, is pretty much unheard of and has only happened when you've got essentially when you've got a player that goes after a coach or goes after fans uh, like we had in, in, in Detroit several years ago. So it's it very much has felt kind of like a, a black white thing, just even from that perspective is when it's perceived that something, you know, you have a black athlete going after a white person or a white, a, a prominent white person or a fan and white fans that the league handles those sorts of instances very, very differently and um, does not want people to be threatened by that perception. So he was punished very harshly. Um, you know, if it was the right decision, that's fine. I'm, I'm not really an arbiter for that. Um, but Latrell had a really rough go from that standpoint. Um, and, you know, it, I think it did work with the Knicks as far as the Knicks getting to the finals with him, him being the best player on that finals team once Patrick was hurt. Um my question and my thought for all this has always been if they could have had some of those guys that came in at the back end of the decade a little bit sooner um, while Patrick still had his health and was still young enough or, or not quite as old as he was by the time Latrell got there, that I think that they probably do win one. Certainly 94, you know, if you look at they have Allen Houston a little bit earlier, you have a, a more reliable, consistent player than John Starks in that finals. Um, I don't think it's any question that they probably get at least one title, but they never were able to get all those guys on the same team in an early enough stage in Patrick's career. It was always the talk that Patrick, you know, Jordan had Pippen and then he had a bunch of great shooters around him, whether it was first Paxson, then you bring in Kerr. And the, the talk always was the Knicks could never get a legitimate second superstar. Now, of course, in the NBA, you want to have, quote unquote, the big three. With those Knicks during the 90s, you know, you could argue Sprewell may have been part of potentially a big three, but certainly there weren't three. And the at back end of the career with Larry Johnson's back, but Patrick really in his prime, and never had anyone. These guys are great role players. They're championship role players. But the Knicks never were able to put together, and I talked to Ernie about this, they were never able to get a second superstar. And that's what cost them. Yeah, they never could. And I mean, they... they they never were that close to getting a second. The closest they probably got, I do mention in the book, was that they tried at one point to trade for Alonzo Mourning, both to get Mourning and to just have kind of a twin tower situation in 96, I think it was, but also uh, to get him from Charlotte. But also they were trying to screw over Pat Riley, who they knew really desperately wanted Alonzo Mourning to build a team similar to what the Knicks had in Miami when he, when he took the job in Miami. And so they offered... I can't remember exactly what the combination was, but I think they offered Starks and Mason and they offered Charles Smith and Charles Oakley at another point, a draft pick. And Charlotte basically came out and said, the Knicks made us the second best offer. We just thought the one we got from Miami was 
was better to, to get Alonzo. So that was the closest they ever got to getting a superstar. And aside from that, they had guys that were, that they thought could be stars or like star adjacent. You know, they, they constantly were getting guys kind of on the back end of a career. They had any number of guys that were 20 point scores elsewhere. Um, they got Rolando Blackman at the very end of his career, but he was not completely healthy. They brought in Charles Smith, who was a 20 point per game scorer with the Clippers. Um, and then signed him to a massive extension. They had gotten Xavier McDaniel the year before that, who was a guy that they thought could still be a star-level scorer's player. Um, they got a guy named Tony Campbell, who was a 20-point-per-game scorer, I think, with the Timberwolves before that. Um, you know, they ended up bringing in Larry Johnson, who had had the back problems by then. Allen Houston, you talk about Latrell. Um, you know, and Camby obviously was a guy that maybe not a star, but a guy that certainly had star qualities on the defensive end. They they really did swing and miss a lot of times that related to that. Again, I think they did finally get that guy in Latrell. Um, and I think that Allen Houston had some of those qualities too, um, you know, before he started breaking down physically. But they, there was never just a bona fide star every year, year in, year out, a guy that could just go get you a basket whenever he felt like. Um, they were always kind of, one guy away, I think. And, uh, and quite frankly, and I detail this in the book, I think they also kind of misused Charles Smith and kind of broke Charles Smith a little bit. I think Pat Riley did. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to sway anybody necessarily with my thoughts, but I feel like the more I started reading back my quotes and kind of reading the details of what Riley put Charles Smith through to some extent, um, that was an instance where I kind of feel like they didn't get as much out of him as they could have. And that he's a guy that would have shined in today's NBA that, you know, I kind of felt like malpractice a little bit the way they handled him. But, but remember, what they didn't want was someone soft and someone soft who shared the name as Charles Oakley. And the view of Charles Smith is that just he was soft. He was long. But then what happened in game five, uh, just that was it for him. And he did not have the strength to get through it because the, not just the fans, but executives, the teammates. It was brutal how it would how it happened after that. I mean, I could talk about this all day long because I'm fascinated. But before I let you go, I know we're a little over, but I just have one more question. Tell me the thought process about your next book. What do you what are you thinking about? Do, did you like doing this book? The two years it took? What can we expect from you going forward? Uh, I I this book was really challenging, but I also fell in love with it at a certain point because it, you know, first of all, I think there's this perception that's completely wrong by the way that um people are only interested in telling the stories of the winners um first of all it's wrong i think the most watched 30 for 30 before you had the last dance was the fab five documentary i'm a michigan alum um you know i was not of age to have remembered those teams and but i think the nation was kind of fascinated by them you loved them you hated them whatever it was but they fundamentally changed the culture as it related to basketball is it related to hip hop on some level? Is it related to the idea of seeing big swaths of, of all Americans playing with each other, um, playing together at, at different schools? And so they were a huge paradigm shift for the sport. Um, the Knicks were maybe not quite that, but they were they, they represented a big shift in the NBA. I think there's a lot of stuff now that you you would not have the beautiful NBA that we have today, or you would not have had it as quickly as you did if not for those Knicks teams that the league was essentially running away from and saying, we can't have this in our sport anymore. We don't want physicality to overrule and override skill, talent, athleticism. So um, they were really important from that standpoint. They were a part of all the important moments of that era from the OJ chase to all the MJ stuff to the Pacers and the Reggie spike interplay to the heat rivalry, which is probably the nastiest rivalry of the late nineties, regardless of whether you felt like it was the, the best teams playing the teams hated each other more than any other two teams in the sport by the late nineties. So all that stuff was relevant. I kind of called the Knicks, the Forrest Gump of that era. So I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed telling their story. It was kind of incredible that nobody had really told the story at length on a, on a large scale that was kind of um, pervasive in the media. So I really did enjoy it. Um, I'm not sure what the next project is yet. I've got some ideas that I don't want to put out there publicly yet. Um, but I'm also trying to do due diligence to make sure that they haven't been done on a broad scale, similar to this next book where you don't want to, you don't want to write something that people are like, I already know everything there is to know with that, or it's already been done really well at length some, by somebody else. So, um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about some things that I think for most first time authors, 
you start thinking about the second book and you're like, oh, let me find something that's exactly the same as the story I just told. And I've been guilty of that with finding teams that have gotten really close, but don't quite win, that were really interesting in some way that, you know, the torture of their story is kind of a selling point uh, just because the team hasn't been good since. So you think about something like the Sacramento Kings, um, it, you know, it's interesting because of how close they got during the Kobe Shaq era um, and never quite won, but had, you know, basically one or two star players, but that was about it. Um, and a team that almost went away permanently because of the fact that, you know, they haven't, they've gone 16 years now, the longest stretch in NBA history without making the playoffs. So, um, you know, I thought about that. I was like, I, I don't think the interest is there the way it is for Knicks fans and how many Knicks fans there are in the market and everything like that. But I've thought about teams like that, like teams that got close and didn't quite win. Um, but I've got one or two ideas that I'm not quite ready to share yet. Well, Chris, having now appeared on the New York Times bestseller list, it's like winning your first World Series. And the only thing better than being on the bestseller list once is doing it twice. And <laughs> you you are going to do it. So thank you for being here. It's called Blood in the Garden. I am very thankful that you wrote this book for me. And I'm thankful that there are millions of other people who feel just as I do. I really do appreciate your time here, Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, David. I really appreciate it. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.